quite a number of years. Both of them now goes out, uh, went out, lives in the Philippines, and heads up a tremendous work. Probably much bigger and busier than probably you can imagine. Uh, but after you see this today and hear what she's saying, maybe you'll get an idea of what goes on. And uh, then whenever she's finished, I will come back again just for a few moments. Uh, not be preaching this morning, you'll be glad to hear. Uh, Claire will talk for both of us. And she's never short of something to say. And she's got lots of good things to say today. And so we want you to welcome her as she comes. And uh, here she comes. Just welcome her. Many churches support missions, but not all of them has got their own missionary. This is our own in-house bred missionary. And he's not one bit biased. <laughs> Good morning. So, see, you have it all planned out in your mind, and then you show up, and your numbers are doubled, and there's people from all over the world sitting, and, and then you have to start at the start again. So, just for those of you who don't know an awful lot about the work, I'm just going to give you a little bit of background, and you'll be home by two o'clock, so don't panic. No money kidding. You'll be home by 1.30. So just going to give you a little bit of background about it for those of you who are not so sure. So I went out to the Philippines 14 years ago. Can you believe that? Because I can't believe it. Where does the time go? 14 years ago, I went out to the Philippines to be a missionary uh, with an orphanage. And I was supposed to be going out just for a lot of weeks. I think mommy thought I'd book my flights for about six weeks, but I booked them for six months. So poor woman nearly had a heart attack, but I got out to the Philippines and when I arrived, I could have told you the first week that I would be there for a lifetime. Absolutely loved it. I just knew. And you know, I was thinking recently as well, even as I was growing up in church, I remember sitting like the age of these wee ones in the front row and my mum and dad always brought me to church. And even on Sunday nights, we would have came and we would have heard the guest speakers. And I always remember hearing the like of Bob and Alma McAllister telling the, the stories about the Congo jungle. And we heard about just missionaries from all over the world used to come. Do you remember like Ariane and Effie used to come? And even though they weren't missionaries, but they traveled all over the world. And I always used to listen to all the stories. Noah's woke up now, he's heard my voice. I used to hear all the stories and it used to really inspire me. And I remember thinking, someday I want to have stories like that. I don't want to live a boring life. I want to have a life where I've got stories to tell, even if it's short term, even if it's just a wee couple of weeks here, a couple of weeks there, but I've got to have something in me to tell. But when I hit my teens, that went a bit pear-shaped, as many of you know. And when I went off to college for about four years, I completely backslid, much to my shame. But God's a God of second chances. And I'm so thankful for my folks and for many of you in here who prayed me back in. And when I came back to the Lord in 1997, I remember uh, going up to the front at Hillsborough Island Bible Week to get saved and to come to the Lord. And I remember saying, Lord, I just want you to use me. Really, I do, because I cannot be the person who shows up on Sunday, maybe squeezes in a Wednesday night and, and hopes for the best. I can't do that. It's not who I am. And I'll just flounder if that's the way I am. So you have to be careful what you ask the Lord for, because he listens to you and he uses you. So I remember exactly a year after I came back to the Lord, exactly a year, my feet were in the Philippines. And I thought, of course, like I said, it was only going out for six months. I didn't know it would be a lifetime until I arrived there. But my life has had its ups, it's had its downs, but I'll tell you this, it's a life of adventure. 
There's nothing boring about serving the Lord. There's nothing boring about loving Jesus. It all depends on you and what you do with what he gives you. It really is up to you to put the pieces together. It really is up to you to get up and do something for him. Because if all you do is just come, if all you do is just show up, you really will get bored very, very quickly. See, once you step out, though, and just start to do something for Jesus, I'm not kidding you. It's the best thing you'll ever do. So 10 years ago, after I'd worked in POC for a lot of years, uh, the Lord had put it in my heart to help the children in the local hospital. When you get sick in the Philippines, it's not like getting sick here at home. It's very, very different. As soon as you arrive uh, in the Philippines, you, you would see a completely different culture. Uh, now, Filipinos are very friendly, just like Northern Irish people. Uh, in fact, we have a whole pile of Filipinos here at the back. Let's see. Okay yung Tagalog ko compared kay Josh, kasi mas Northern Ireland siya, di ba, compared sa akin. I'm saying my Tagalog's better than Josh's, because Josh's is now more Northern Ireland than I am. Just for, if you'd like to meet Josh on the way out, he's the brown one with the Irish accent. <laughs> but, now you may lose my place now. So, it's very different than life here at home. Especially when you get sick. Um, in fact, some of you in the States might be the same. I'm not sure about South Africa, but when you uh, get sick there, you have to pay for everything. And I mean everything. As soon as you arrive at the hospital, you know what it's like, all you mummies or daddies or aunties or uncles, granny and granddad. When you have a screaming sick child, it is horrific. So you arrive at the hospital, and the first thing the doctor does is he hands you a prescription to run outside by the gloves the needle to go in the back of your hand, the stick and plaster to stick it on, the drip, everything. You have to buy it all. Now, most dads are earning about £5 a day, and it'll cost you half of that just to buy the, the tubes and the needles and the stuff to get you set up for a drip for your wee one. And maybe they're really severely dehydrated. You just need to get the fluids into them. That's already your half a day's wage gone. And then the doctor will say, I need a urine test, need a blood test, need an x-ray. Okay, that's another day and a half's wages. And if they say they need a CT scan, that's about 150, 200 pounds, and you earn five pound a day. So immediately, immediately parents are in a tough position. Even those with money, by the end of the week or by the end of the month, even they're in a really tough position. But the majority of people who use our wee local government hospital really have nothing, and they show up like with just a couple of hundred pesos in their pocket, which is just a few pounds. So very often, the doctor takes a look at the wee one and says, look, really honestly, it looks like meningitis or it looks like a, a severe viral infection. We need to do a CT scan. We need to get meds into them. Antibiotics, we're talking maybe 20 pounds a vial. Um, if it's just something simple, bad throat or something, it's just maybe a couple of pence a vial. But when it's something serious, I, my heart goes out to these mums and dads. In those moments, you can just see broken-hearted people. I've seen so many just say, it's, it's okay, Doc, thanks anyway. Uh, I'll just take them home. Just, I'll just take them home and hope for the best. Because they don't have it. So the Lord really put it on our hearts to do something. Those are the worst moments of your life. If you ever want to meet a Christian, when do you want to meet them? In the worst moments of your life. You're like, suddenly everybody finds the name of the Lord. God, please help me. No matter what religion, 
When somebody's sick and dying in front of you, the first thing you think of is, God, please help me. So along comes Helping Hands, black t-shirt, nice logo. And we're like, please, can I help you? I tell you what, Nicola, just you hold her and I'll run outside. Because in those moments, we ones don't want to be left lying on a bed, screaming by themselves while mum runs outside to get something. And, you know, it's a whole panic. So we're like, look, you just stay and hold me, Sarah, or we, Rebecca, and I'll just run outside and, and get those things for you. And then um, we come back in and mummies are looking at us as if, now, who are you? Why are you doing this? And we say, oh, I'm Claire, I'm from Helping Hands. And I, look, I just want to help you out. Let's help you first. And then they're like, oh, well, they need bloods. Well, they need laboratories. Well, that's okay. I'll just go and do that for you. And that's where we use your money. Now, Daddy said earlier, what Daddy said was, I need to come home and tell you about my mission. I need to come home and tell you about our mission. Because this is what we do together. I'm the feet, and I can go there and be there. I'm the hands, I can go and do that. But if I have nothing in my hands, then I'm in as bad a position as they're in. And although I can pray for them, and believe you me, I do pray for them, I can't actually do an awful lot to help. So I really am so thankful for all of you who have given, who support, thankful for the charity shop and the charity shop that is to be, for all who man it and staff it, whether you're a half day a week or you're six days a week, I don't know what you are, but I'm really thankful for all of you and for those who have run marathons and walked marathons and for those of you who have done all sorts of stuff iron men and and sponsored this that and the other it really really makes the difference and what you're going to see this morning is a product of what you have been able to achieve it's good to know where you when you give money it's good to know where it goes it's good to be able to see it. So this morning I've brought a DVD to show you. And what I want to be able to do is show you the DVD and let you see firsthand what you have been supporting for the last 10 years. And this is what you have given into. This is what you have sowed into. I know sometimes when you throw the money in the basket, there's a big gap, you know, between when you throw it in the basket and, and where it ends up. But I want you to know, for those of you that have put into helping hands, this is where it ends up. Uh, so what you're going to see this morning is what the Lord has done really in the last 10 years in the Philippines. And it's been really amazing. The work has grown so much. Uh, as many of you know, I went out by myself uh, 10 years ago and started Helping Hands. And I was really by myself. My friend from Balamina came out to help me. And she stayed for about six months. And then since that time till now, the Lord has grown us to over 40 staff. It takes 40 of us just to make the team work. Because as you know and I know, not one person can do everything. I am the worst administrator in the world. I'm the best spender in the world. But if you ask me to reimburse and give you all the receipts at the end of the day, I take out this pile of fluffy papers and hand them to, to the girl who does my books and she just despairs at me. And when I come back like an hour later, they're perfectly lined up, stapled, red pen, purple pen. And I'm, I mean, I couldn't even do that. Then I have social workers, I have nurses, I have caregivers, I have house parents. Uh, we have doctors that come in and volunteer for us. We have a physio that comes in and volunteers for us. We have missionaries, we have pastors, we have evangelists. We have a cook, we have cleaners, we have everything and the reason I'm telling you that is this very often we look at ourselves and we say sure what could I do for the Lord I mean what what on earth's good is my skill to to the kingdom of God 
But I'm here to tell you this this morning. Whatever skill it is that the Lord has given you, I guarantee you, 100% sure, I haven't got a doubt in my mind, that the Lord can use it for his glory. If I didn't have the team, I couldn't do what I do. So I'm really, really thankful for them. I want to show you the DVD now, and then I'm going to come back and tell you a few of the stories uh, from the kids that you're going to see right up here on the screen. These children are still in our care. This was only taken about a month and a half ago. So what you're going to see is fresh this morning. The children that are up here are the children that are there now. And you're going to see, first of all, the opening scene is in Baguio City. Are any of you from Baguio City? So none of the Filipinos here are from Baguio. Baguio is about six hours up north. So just up the road, you know. So when I have to go up to... To work, it's just six hours, you know, so it's just a wee drive. See, my cunning plan is I usually leave about two or three in the morning. I get in for nine, I work all day, work to the next day, and come, leave about two or three in the morning and come home. So that's usually the way I do when I go up there. But the, the work up in Baguio is a children's recovery unit. So, as you know, we have the work in the hospital. We provide free medications, free operations, chemotherapy, all the tests that you could need. We go on the wards every single day. We're doing puppet shows. We're leading the kids to the Lord. We're doing Bible studies. We're leading the parents to the Lord. Because life with Jesus is way different than life without Jesus. Is it tough? Oh, yeah. It's still tough. But it's way better. It's way better. I couldn't do life without the Lord. I couldn't do it. And that's what I have to share to them. The Bible calls it the good news. Well, it's called the good news for a reason. It's called the good news for a reason. I need to tell people, you don't need to go to hell. You don't need to be lost for how you have lived your life. Because God sent his only son to make sure that you didn't have to go to a lost eternity. That's good news. Especially if you're about to die. How often... We go in and meet teenagers with cancer. How often we go in and meet parents in the next ward, uh, mommies, daddies, grannies, grandas who are not well. I remember one particular wee family that we helped. We helped the wee one, and they weren't that sick, but they were in the hospital, and we helped them out. But we led the mommy to the Lord. And about two weeks later, we saw the daddy downstairs, and we says, oh, how, how are you? Is your wee one back in again? He says, no, it was my wife. He says, where is she? He says, she's in the morgue. She came in this morning and he says she was dead within a half an hour. I don't really know what happened. He says she just took not well. And at first, I took her breath away. And then we thought, oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that we just two weeks ago, we were able to lead her to you. That's amazing that we had that moment and that timing and that opportunity. Um, you never miss an opportunity in the Philippines. You shouldn't miss an opportunity here either. But we're so aware of it that we dare not miss opportunities because when we meet somebody, you're so aware that you never just know when they're going to go into eternity. You just never know it. So that's what we do. So we have the recovery units. They're not orphanages. We don't take the children in and keep them forever. Uh, so what we do, because sometimes some of you ask me, can I sponsor a child? Well, you can, but once they're well, I'm going to send them home again. I'm not going to hang on to them if I don't need to. If they can go back and, and live with their families, then that is the best thing for them. So what I do in the recovery unit is we take the children in when they're not well. When they get discharged from the hospital, they're still really weak. They're really, really skinny. We've got six-year-olds that are weighing newborn weights. When they're coming in, can't walk anymore. We legs aren't working. Mommy comes back six weeks later doesn't even recognize them, we even runs past them. And they're like, I'm here to pick up John Paul. And she says, no, no, 
the one that can't, no, he can't walk. No, that's, no, really, that's him. And then the woman's just like, <laughs> I mean, really, honestly, that has happened so many times because when it, it, the, the difference in these children that, that God, when he touches them, when you feed them up the right thing, get the right medication into them, the Lord just touches them and their lives are transformed forever. So the first thing that you'll see is the recovery unit up in Baguio City. And in Baguio, we're housing about 13 children every time. So we max out at about 13. And at the minute, we have quite a few in with leukemia. Uh, we have wee ones in with diseases that we had never even heard of down in Longapo. Just a whole different set of kids. The very first wee ones that you'll see in the video, you'll see the wee girl and she's pushing along her wee brother in the wee car. And she has a waddle. In fact, she walks like this. She walks like a duck. And the reason that she does that is the two children were born with congenital hip problems. I think it's congenital hip displacement possibly, but they're both well out of place anyway. But here's the story. Just to get to the hospital in Baguio City, they had to hike for 16 hours to get down the mountain. They get down the mountain, they ride a bus for six hours, then they ride a jeepney, which is like our equivalent of like a minibus. They ride that for another hour just to get to the hospital. They arrive at the hospital to see the surgeon and the secretary informs them that he's off today and you could come back next Thursday. Now, you and I know how you feel when you go up to the Royal or you go up to Craig Avon and, you know, and you're kept waiting a half an hour. Uh, 16 hour hike, six hours on a bus, two hours on a jeepney with two children that needed carried and fed for all that length of time. And money, like these people live up the mountains, they have nothing. Even just the fares to get there was a big sacrifice. In fact, the local social services actually helped them out. So when they got to Baguio, thank goodness, somebody overheard the whole conversation and referred them to Helping Hands. So we were able to take in the two children and the parents for the first week until they got their appointment over them. And a year later, we still have the wee ones and we've been able to operate on them and the little girl Jenlyn she's already gone back home and the wee boy Dexter he's just one more surgery to get uh, to bring his wee leg down to the same length as the other one and he'll be ready for home but this is how the Lord does it sometimes we're not even expecting it and the next thing they just show up and we're able to literally save their lives uh, you'll see Baguio City I'm going to tell you about one of the other wee girls straight after that you'll see her laughing I'll come back and tell you about her later so after you see Baguio City then what you'll see is uh, the hospital down in Alongapo, you'll see James L. Gordon, where we're in working every day on the wards, like I said. The evangelism team go in there literally every single day. Then after that, you will see uh, a young guy, he's about 15 years old, and he's sitting in a wheelchair looking extremely sad. I'll tell you about him after. And then we have the medical mission that we did at Pastulan. Um, uh, a wee while ago. What we do is, maybe about once or twice a year, um, especially when one of you have went and done like an event like the Ironman or something like that, and there's a wee burst of money comes in, we go, brilliant, we've got a £1,000, we're going to go and do a medical mission somewhere. So we go and find like a really remote community, and we go in, and we bring doctors with us. There's a big guy from Northern Ireland come over. We bring him, and we that's what we're going to do when Grace and Tony come. Did you like how I slipped that in? So... Wasn't a bit obvious, sure it wasn't. So when Grace and Tony come the next time they're in Malaysia and they slip over to the Philippines, what we're going to do is, and one of you will have done a big competition, sent us money, we're going to have a medical mission. So we go into a remote community and we just set up, put the music on, 
have it bumping, you know all the kids Hillsong stuff? So the music draws the crowd, put up a sign, free medical mission, all of a sudden you've got 300 patients. Uh, and 300 patients and about five to 10 doctors, so that takes a wee while. So you have a captive audience while they're sitting waiting. The next thing you know, they're all hearing about the Lord, accepting the Lord, and lives are changed right there and then. You get to counsel people, you get to pray with them, you get to really talk to them and get to know them. So I absolutely love the medical mission days, they're fantastic. Um, then what you'll see after the medical mission is, you'll see uh, recently there was a, a, a spate of disasters in the Philippines and one was in Cagayan de Oro, which is a bit further on down south. And what had happened was there's a big river that runs through Cagayan de Oro and it just goes like this through the middle of the city. Um, but one night, it was about three o'clock in the morning, everybody was fast asleep in their beds, just normal night, everybody's fast asleep in their bed or on the floor, wherever they sleep, and it was raining hard, and the dam burst, and all of a sudden, the river came rushing through the city, and as it swooshed through like that, it knocked the whole village out, it knocked out Rodden Court, knocked out St. John's Church, uh, knocked out Rowandale School, and that's the way it went through the whole city. People were just lying in their beds. The next thing they knew, if they were lucky enough to wake up, they woke up clinging to mango trees, they were clinging to roofs, they were clinging to whatever they could cling to, trying to grab their children. Some of them ended up literally the whole night till the water went down, just holding their children. So these families, thousands of lives were lost, but those, those who survived then have been relocated to evacuation centres. So uh, when we heard that we have missionary friends down there, and I said, Gigi, how are you doing? She says, well, my daddy's nice to you, Diane. The disaster's just happened. We're not flooded, but all of her friends have lost their homes. And she says, she was just in tears. She says, Claire, I, I can't take any more sad stories. It's absolutely killing me. Please come and help us. I says, what do you want me to do? A medical mission or something? She said, no, there's plenty of medical missions. All the Red Cross have come and everybody's come. She says, people just need you to sit down and listen to them. They just want to tell their story. And then they want you to pray with them. Um, some of them are still praying for family members to be found. Some are just praying that their lives are able to be put back together. Can you imagine losing everything? Every bit of paper that says who you are, your birth certificate, your marriage certificate, the kids' pictures from when they were born, um, every stitch of clothes except what you were wearing. In fact, when we were there, we flew down about a week later to help uh, I just put together a wee team of six and we had no money at the time. I am not kidding. We were skint. I said, oh, dad, we are broke as bums. What am I going to do? Like, honestly, I have, we have literally nothing. But dad, it is, it's dire. Like, people are depressed. There was a man who just committed suicide in one of the evacuation camps. There was just not enough people to go in and counsel. So he said, just go. The Lord will provide. And sure enough, actually, somebody did send something just, I think it was just the week after a wee bit of money came in. So we were able to just go in and minister. But I remember the day that we arrived, the two doctors took us around the places. So I was standing on this big muck hill, just looking out at nothing. And I was looking out, literally at just a sea of muck, you know, dried up muck. And I said to, um, I was watching this man, I suppose he was about where Evelyn was sitting away from me and he was digging and there was a wee one about Micah's age sitting, uh, a wee girl, and then there was another bigger one, maybe about Rebecca's age sitting and I, he, he was digging and digging and digging and I was thinking, dear love that man, I, he's maybe scavenging for something. But 
The next thing, he pulled out this shoe. And the wee tote started jumping up and down. She was all excited. And I says to Gigi, why is she so excited? She says, that's her shoe. So I said to the man, is that, is that your home? He says, no, you're standing in my home. I says, oh, I'm so sorry. I hardly knew where to, you know, it's like standing somebody's grave. You hardly know where to stand then. I says to him, oh, I'm so sorry. He says, it's okay. He says, there's nothing left. I'm just digging about to see if I can find any bits of anything. I asked him what happened. He says, see that mango tree? I clung to it for hours and I held these two. And he says, I lost the other two and I lost my wife. But he says, our house was there. And he says, when the flood came, it just swished right over to here. He says, it actually just just moved and just like that. So in those moments, you're just standing and thinking, Lord, what can I do? What can I do? So all you can do is share with people, just pray with them. Just put a wee Pentecostal handshake, just put a wee bit of money under their hands. Say, look, it's not a lot, but it'll, it'll maybe get you crinkly tin for a new roof. It'll maybe get wee women a wee a new pair of shoes, just something like that. But we were able to really minister into people's lives that week. We were able to help a lot of people. And in fact, I'll tell you later about one more that you'll see on the, on the thing. And the final thing you'll see in the DVD is the new recovery unit in Alongapo. So as you know, how many of you have actually been out with us? Sherlyn Ferns, Mom, Dad, Clifford, Jim, and Joyce, Raymond, Levia, Lois, Rach, Ethna. Who else? There's somebody else that's been out. Jason, you've been out. And Hannah's been out. That's right. Um, so, and the rest of you are coming out then. Is that this year or next year? Sarah Patterson, Brian, yeah, tell you, you to get yourselves together and see it. Marty and Lisa, I'm just waiting for you. So, no pressure now. David Henderson, Gary Gregg, David Nichol. So, anyway. For those of you who have been, you will know that our recovery unit... Now, have you ever heard me say a negative word about it? No. I've bragged about it for years. It's a great building. It does the job. But honest to goodness, it's at the side of the road. So it's not really... It's noisy. And it's not maybe just the best place for, uh, for, for recovering in. For example, you go outside and you go to take a big breath here. And then you go... <laughs> Because the tricycle whiffs past you and a big whiff of smoke comes out the back of it, you know, eat my dust. And honest to goodness, it is terrible. Like, and there's no garden. All we have is a bit of cement with a, the, cover, uh, the covered plain area, as I used to call it when I was selling it to you, that it was a great place. Because it was all I had, you know. But it was actually just a big garage, really. But it did the job for years and we were so thankful for it. In fact, it's still doing the job, really. But... A lovely thing happened. When I was home the last time, I was sitting in Green Patchers and I was talking to Pastor Jeff. I was just telling him, he says, Claire, what are you, what are you doing? I mean, what, what, what's in your heart for the next, say, five years? And I says, Pastor, I've never really wanted, I've never really wanted an orphanage. But I says, what has happened recently is we've had to send some children home. And the children that we have sent home have not made it. Now, it doesn't always happen because sometimes you send them home to families who are able to really take good care of them and things out work out great. But there are a few wee families who are maybe living on the street or they've got into really dire straits and two of our wee children, we lost them. And it really broke my heart. And it says, Pastor Jeff, it's in my heart someday to have an orphanage just for those that I cannot send home again. For those that I can send home back to their families, that's my goal. Children are great when they're with their mummies and daddies. They thrive. But for those who have no mummy and daddy, or for those who are living under bridges, like my wee mate Anne, as you know, she came from under the bridge in Manila with drug-using parents. It just wasn't a good situation. 
I want to give them a chance. So he was saying, well, how are you going to do that? And I said, well, I don't know, Pastor. You don't have a few million lying about, do you? He says, no, I don't wish I did. And I says, no, there's not too many has. And I was just saying, you know, if I had another property, I'd be able to do that. The next day I went home to mummy and daddy's and I got a phone call from my staff. They says, ma'am, you'll never believe this. Funniest thing happened. They said, the owner of the new, they've bought over this hospital on the, on the local SBMA. Now that is the old American naval base. And they said, what they've done is they've reopened the fancy hospital up there. And he wants to offer us a place up there. I said, right. Well, that sounds too good to be true. Because, you know, when things sound too good to be true, very often they are too good to be true. Or else I'm just a skeptic, let me get at I'm not sure which. But anyway, I says, well, we'll not rush into anything. But I was secretly in my heart, I was like, hmm, this is good. Quite excited about this. But I'm just going to wait it out. Daddy always taught me, just wait it out and see, see what happens. So we waited for about a year and a half. We made negotiations. And one day I finally met this really rich owner. And I asked him, can I, I'm Irish, I said, so I'm going to be frank with you. Because Filipino way is you tell stories, you talk for a long time. You don't really ask the straight question now, uh, so what are you doing this for? But I'm Irish, so I said to him, Mr. Ang, can I just be frank with you? He said, go ahead. I said, why? Why would you want to give us a place 50-year lease. He said, they've leased it for 50 years. We can have it for the length of the lease and all we will pay is electric and water. No rent. Why would you do that for us? He said, I've been to your place down below. I absolutely love what you do, but that is not a place for children to recover. And he says, it's beside the road. They've nowhere to play. It's not safe. He said, I can offer you a place in the middle of a uh, 17-hectare virgin forest. He said, when you breathe you will breathe pure oxygen and you will notice the difference. And really, that is the truth. And I said to him, but why? Tell me honestly, why? He said, well, I've been in politics for all these years. And he said, it's about time I started to do something good with my money. Catholic, you see, so he believes in good works. As born agains, I believe personally, as a believer, in fact, I'll read it for, for you later, Good works will not save you. Good works will never get you to heaven. But as a believer, good works should flow out of your life. You should want to do good things. You shouldn't want to sit in your house all week long, show up at 11, be out by half 12. That shouldn't be what's in your heart. You should be like, Lord, please give me some opportunity this week to do something for the kingdom. That's what should flow from you. So I said to him, so Mr. Ang, that's what you're doing. And he says, yes, plus I have business plans to make it like a residential facility for older people. And he says, the thoughts of having a bunch of children just roaming around does my heart good. He says, the ambience will be great. I says, thanks for being honest. That's great. I'll take it. So we were able to move in just a few months ago. And what he actually did was he gave us, you'll see it, uh, it's four apartment buildings that the doctors used to live in. And we've knocked the walls through and made it into one big house. So we have 12 bedrooms. We have a massive big sitting room. 
a massive dining room, a massive classroom and play area, an office space with a conference room, exactly what we had dreamed of. Because, you know, a couple of years ago, I sat and wrote down what I would need if I was going to open an orphanage. Lord, what would I need? You know, well, I would need this and this. I, I would need this room and I or it was for a recovery unit. I need a boy's isolation, a girl's isolation, a clean isolation for my cancer patients. I need a toddler's room. I need a, an older girl's room. I need an older boy's room. I need a room for wee Ira because she's been there forever, so she has to have her own room. And then I need this and that. And by the time I had it up, it was 12 rooms. And I remember talking to an architect and he says to me, you made a money. Like, where, how are you going to build a house with 12 rooms and all this stuff that you need? And I said, I know, big dreams, you know, I have. But the Lord provided it exactly as we needed. The Lord provided it. So you'll see that in the thing this morning. And then after that, I'll just come back and tell you a few of the miracles. So go ahead, Johnny. Yeah. 
Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure and privilege to call on the next awardee of the Ulunang Alpha Medal of Excellence, the founder and executive officer of the Helping Hands Ministries, Ms. Claire Cody Henderson.
really a privilege to be able to serve the Lord in this way. You can see why I love the work. What's not to love about that? Yeah, there's days where you have a cry. There's days that your heart's broken. That's great. Lord didn't make me with a, a, a stony heart. He made me with a soft heart. He made me with compassion. And that's why I love to serve him in this way. I'm sure it was a joy for some of you to watch that and see the wee bikes, Joyce. That's all from the container. Maybe some of you even donated them. Maybe your bikes went to Joyce's shop. The next thing they're on the container. The next thing they're out in the Philippines. So finally the kids have a place to ride their bikes. Some of you will be thinking, hey, I know those clothes. Yes, probably came from your house, straight from yours to mine. Um, and then for those of you who had done the shoe boxes as well, the kids loved them. Absolutely loved them. Let me tell you about some of the kids. Do you remember at the very beginning, there was a beautiful girl, she was about 15 years old, and she was turning around like this, and she was laughing. She wasn't laughing when we were found her. We found Chriselle in a hospital in Baguio City, and Marissa was called one day to come to the hospital, and they asked um, Marissa to pay for both of Chriselle's legs to be amputated. They said that both of them, she has lupus, and they said that both of the legs were really, really needing amputated. She was going to die of infection if they didn't. They were both black already. They stank. Things were bad. And Marissa says, you know, usually when the doctors say that, you just say, okay, how much do you need? When are you doing the surgery? And you begin to plan for it. Then she gets on the phone to me. Then I get on the phone to dad. Then dad, I don't know what dad does, but I wait for the money to come anyway. Dad maybe gets on the platform to all of you and ask you to dig deep. But, you know, usually that's what we would do. But in this case, that particular day, uh, Marissa said that just as she was standing at the bedside, she felt it so strong in her heart, do not cut off those legs, that child's going to walk again. And Marissa says, I stood at the hospital bed and I was like, uh, now, uh, Lord, was that you? Because I, I want her to walk again, but I don't want it to be that I just want her to walk again, and I'm hoping that she'll walk again. So I'm like, okay, you know, do we really have to cut them off? She said, Lord, I want to know that that was you. Please speak to me. She says, again, it's clear as a bell. Do not cut those legs off. This child will walk again. So Marissa asked, could she come back the next day? And she spoke to the family and she said to them, look, I really believe that we can help this child. Please let us take her home. Please. So the mummy agreed. And Marissa picked her up the next day and we took her home. And a week later, she took her first baby steps. And within a couple of weeks, she was walking. And how many weeks later, there she is. For the camera, we said, Chriselle, show Queen Leonard what you can do. And she was twirling around. That's why she was laughing. Those legs are working perfectly. The color came back into them. Uh, they're not necrotic anymore. They're beautiful. She's up dancing. You saw them doing their devotion. You see, they were singing, uh, doing their wee dancing. You saw the other little girl. It's not a wee boy. You know the wee, like, bald one? It's leukemia she has. So the, with the chemotherapy, her hair falls out. Um, but these kids are just getting ministered to every day in the recovery unit. They have their devotions. They're coming to know the Lord. And their lives are changing. Tanya had that leukemia. The doctors again said um, she, she had not responded at all to the first regime they'd given her. We were able to find a sponsor from Germany for the second load of chemotherapy. And she's responding really well. Do you know that child goes in for bone marrow tests? And the doctors and the nurses are like, okay, who's holding her down and who's doing this? And, you know, it's usually a horrible procedure, very painful. It's not, there's local anesthesia, but it's not, the children are not knocked out for it in the Philippines. Because, again, that's big money to do that. And 
Marissa says to them, you don't need to hold her down. You don't need to hold her down. And you know, she, she leans over and she gets her wee bone marrow done and she says, ouch, it's so ouchy. And Marissa says, sometimes the nurses look at her as if, is that it? Is that your reaction to this amount of pain? You know, she says usually it takes like three of them to hold the children down. But Tanya is just such a wee fighter. She absolutely amazes us. And she, we went to see her in the hospital one day. And I didn't like to say, but she had all the fluff, you know. And I says to Marissa, I thought her hair fell out. She says, yeah, it did. But she picks it all up off the pillow and sticks it back on. <laughs> so there's like a big fluff on the top of her head, nearly like, you know, one of Granny Dora's hats. You know, sometimes it was just sitting there on the top of her head. So there she was. What a wee fighter. What a fantastic child. And what a privilege we have to take that child in. Minister, this was a child that was given like a month to live. And that was about a year and a bit ago. I absolutely love it. Now then, just the other day, just the day that Mark left, we lost one of the children. He had leukemia and was, was again given just about three to four weeks and he lasted about seven or eight months. And in those seven or eight months, he was able to make sure that he knew where he was going. He was able to bond with his family. We brought the family to live with us. They stayed with us for a few weeks. They were able to forgive their mum because their dad's in death row, you know, in the prison. The mummy's reared all these kids on her own and the woman's really lost her mind and the kids had started, they'd really had no life and they'd really started to resent her for it. They were able to forgive her and they were able to just be bonded together and I love that, that the Lord mended their hearts before he went. Just pray for my staff this week because it's this week that they'll bury that wee boy, Jersan. Did you see on the video, there was a beautiful little girl, she's about five or six years old and I was sitting talking to her like this, holding her wee hands. Stunning child. When I first met that child in hospital, it's not that I've hardened up, but I don't generally cry as much as I used to do. But the day that I met that particular child in hospital, I came home and cried. She broke my heart. And I said to Mark, I have never, never seen as sad a child in my life. The pain, it was just horrific to look into her wee face and if you put your hand anywhere near she nearly knocked the whole arm off you if you leaned up in the bed beside her she was like this she was angry she was swearing she was just she was a wee fireball but there was just then there was just this face of nothing and I actually came home and said to Mark Mark this has broke my heart do you remember that love I came home that night oh my goodness Mark this has broke my heart I phoned my mom I, oh mom this child so we asked for the details and what the, the social services said was that the child has been in five different family homes. She was born to a prostitute, prostitute didn't want her, gave her to the owner of the bar and her husband who abused her. They lost their bar, passed her to another family, they abused her, passed her to the third family, they hired a lesbian nanny to take care of her and she abused her. And so it went until she got to the fifth house. And when she got to the fifth house, it was a wee couple who'd never had any children. And they just loved her. And that was when she finally opened up and told them that things had happened. She didn't even have to open up, really, because every night she screams her way through her sleep every night. night somebody has to go on night duty just to be with her because she just has nightmares all night long. The first week that we had her was horrific. In fact, the staff said you couldn't do more than one night in a row with her because you yourself were so upset. 
after watching her all night that it was it really was that bad like the lord really has to strengthen you to to be a missionary and helping hands sometimes it is difficult but i asked the social services can we get her uh she has pneumonia in her lungs they were talking about cracking open the ribs and all of this we said please let us care so we took her home and i spoke to her that day in fact the day the video was made was the day that i met her and i sat beside her on the bed you wouldn't have noticed it You'd notice I've played it again, but I was telling her, sweetheart, see when you get this out, I'm going to take you to live with us and you will be safe in our house. We're going to take care of you and you will have lots of people that will love you and nothing bad is going to happen to you in our house. And she was looking at me kind of cross, you know, and I promised her that day that nothing bad was going to happen to her when she came to live with us. So we got her out of hospital a few days later and we brought her home to the house and within a week, that child was transformed. Transformed. That particular next weekend, Mark and I went up for the whole day because it was a bank holiday weekend. So we went up for the whole day and we were sitting in the big sofa. It's a big, massive sofa. And Mark was sitting with Noah on his knee and the iPad. And he was fiddling about with it. And she was sitting on my knee at the edge because by this stage, she started to sit on the knee of the girls. So she was sitting on my knee at the edge and she was looking up at him and looking up at him. And the TV's here and she was watching the TV and then she was looking over at Mark and holding Noah. And we sat for hours and she edged up and she edged up and she edged up. Do you remember, Mark? And after about two hours, she'd made her way to the end of the sofa and she snuggled up in under his arm because he just put his arm in around her like this. No one one arm, her in the other arm. And they were sitting with the iPad fiddling away with it. See, my iPads are great jobs, you know. So she's sitting fiddling away with it. That child sat for hours. He says, I'm down to go to the toilet, but I'm not getting up because he says, like, I just don't want to spoil this wee moment for her. She's transformed. We've only had her for about... I would say maybe three to four weeks. And already, when we pull up at the driveway, she's the first one running out the door with her arms open. She says, Mommy, Daddy, and she's straight up into your arms. She's like a stick and plaster. And her whole demeanor has changed. The bad words have gone. Uh, when she, Mark, I'm going to be all black. You said about the mascara this morning. I didn't wash mine off, so I'm going to be all black now. But she, she is just transformed. And I have something to tell you. That has got to be Jesus. Yes, we're good people. Yes, we're kind. We're nice, you know. But we're not perfect. And we can't fix children. All we can do is just love them with the love of Jesus in our hearts and pray to God, literally, that he will touch them. And he does. And he does. Social services have agreed to let us keep her for a year. So will you pray for we, Sheena? Because that's why we're helping hands healing hearts. It's not always just about the medicine. Sometimes it's way, way, way deeper. And it's just months and months of work that needs to be done on a wee child's heart to bring it back to a place where it could go on to live its life and serve Jesus with a happy heart. So pray for wee Sheena. Did you notice the wee boy? Do you remember I told you to watch out for the young guy in the middle? Now he's 15, he maybe didn't look 15, but he was very, very sad again. He was sitting in the wheelchair. Well. Uh, one of the children from Baguio had gone home and they lived away up the back end of a mountain somewhere and this boy was living up the mountain but he couldn't walk, he was lying in a bed and no one had touched him for a year. What had happened was he'd been out at his friends, they were having a barbecue and the woman was spraying the gas, the gas, the, what's the word, the lighter fuel, the petrol on the barbecue 
and it must have had sparked out at her and she automatically went like that but Jerry was standing right behind her and got covered in gas burns he was alive with fire and his uncle rolled him and got the fire out and they got him down the mountain to a hospital two weeks was all they could afford and even in those two weeks they couldn't afford the medications that they needed so they brought him home to die but he didn't die so his legs are now at a permanent 90 degree angle when i got him the wounds were disgusting festered marissa had to drive him from baguio first of all they got him down the mountain to help in hands then she we had no burns in baguio so we know an australian burns nurse who's living near us so we said okay get him down to us she had to drive him for six hours the smell, she says she had to keep stopping the car and saying, oh, I'm just going to the toilet. And she said she would get out, throw up, get back in. Because I arrived and it was like magic tree city in the Star X. But she said, now, madame, I just warned you. She says, when you open the door, step back, don't breathe in. So she opened the door and then I went, hi. Hmm, how are you, son? But honestly, it was horrific. And he was lying there with a big smile on his face. I said, well, I didn't expect to see you smiling. He says, no, I'm really excited. Now, then she told me, this boy does not let anyone touch him because of the pain. So his hair was down to here when he arrived. So Marissa had it all chopped up. Um, but he really wasn't a bit well. But we were able to get him to the Burns nurse and we were able to, to, to buy the dressings. Now, this is where you, again, have been part of this boy's healing process. Each dressing, four by four, costs about 10, 12 pounds and we need 20 to dress both legs every time. Of course, if this was here, Dr. Tony would write a prescription, uh, Pastor David would go to the chemist and he would get a big bag of dressings for free and the community nurse would come out to the house and she would do it up all lovely and, and if it got a wee bit stained, she would take it off and put a new one on. We have to drive to Manila, three hours away, to buy the dressings. We spend about a couple of hundred pound, just over a couple of hundred pound every time. We bring it back and then we get them all dressed. But the change in this boy in six weeks, it would blow you away. The child's legs have finally started to move. They've moved. We're convinced that God is really going to touch this boy. His legs are moving. His wounds have come in five inches. Like that's a lot of healing time in just a number of weeks. He's eaten like a horse, which is great because he'd hardly had a bite. He was, we, we guessed he was 30 kilos. He's about Luke's weight and he's 15. Oh, I'm not kidding. There's nothing to him. Like, there's nothing to him. But now the smile, that video that particular day just had his dressings changed, so he wasn't doing very much smiling because uh, it's quite painful. But, you know, and funny Val texts me after and she says, if you'd have seen the smile on his face, you know, that afternoon, she says, I wanted to call the video guy and say, get back here, do you see this? You know, he's just, he's putting his foot down, you know. But God has really touched Jerry. I know a lot of you were praying for him. I'm sure Gary Gag was praying at the prayer meeting because he prays for everybody we ask him to. But it was really, the Lord has touched him. The Lord has touched him. Now, because he's living with the Australian Burns nurse, he hasn't come to know the Lord yet, so we're being patient. When, when she's done with him and she's got her side of the physical work done, then he'll come to help in hands and we're hoping to lead him to the Lord. I'll just tell you one more wee story. As many of you know, our wee Noah wasn't a bit well. We spent two and a half months in ICU with Noah. And, you know, even before Noah came, I hadn't been well. It was, 
I don't know, it just was a really bad pregnancy. I spent about seven months on the flat of my back in bed and really was so ill. Ended up having surgery at kidney stones, nearly lost a kidney, had to get a stent in. This was all throughout the pregnancy. It really was bad. And of course, you have to pay for all of that. So that makes it even worse. Bad enough, you're sick. You have to pay. It's even worse. So we got through the pregnancy. I was really excited about Noah coming. I was convinced that everything would be fine. But he came and it wasn't fine. He really wasn't well. Um, he had sepsis, he had pneumonia. And just as we thought we got him okay, we got him out of the hospital. Uh, Mum and dad were there, as you know. This is why I had your pastor for six weeks, by the way. Two weeks turned into six, but I'm really glad they were there for me. We got him home from the hospital and we were changing his nappy and I was saying, Dad, there's something wrong with this wee pet. He's, he's turning blue every time I change his nappy. It's as if he's in pain. When you touch his wee leg, he goes nuts. So by the second day, we all agreed, this is not a coincidence, there's something wrong with this child's leg. And we brought him to the, the local doctors, who are all adult uh, orthopedics, and they were like, no, I don't think so. Maybe it's just where he got his wee injection or something. You know, it's very, you know yourself, you get a jag in your arm, it's really sore. But when I checked the book, it had the jag on the other leg. So it wasn't that. So we piled ourselves into the car and we drove to Manila. And we found the best paediatric orthopedic surgeon in the country. The girl had trained in the States. She was absolutely brilliant at what she does. And we got Noah to her. And she took one look at him, didn't she, Dad? She said, this is septic hip, septic arthritis. And she, uh, she says, I'll need an MRI to confirm it. But she says, because it's been about 10 days, because um, he, was, he wasn't even two weeks old, then she says, it's, a, it's not good. So she said, go home, pack your bags and come back ready to stay and live in Manila for about the next six weeks. So we went back to Alongapo, packed our bags, came back, we had to book a motel because we don't know anywhere to stay in Manila, and we had to move in. So after an MRI, it confirmed that he had osteomyelitis, which meant the infection had gone right into his bone. Then she said to me, do you know he's the first case that I've ever dealt with of septic hip, septic arthritis, and osteomyelitis in a neonate, in a wee tiny baby. Oh, Lord, it's her first case. That's not really what I wanted to hear. You know, you want to hear, oh, I've dealt with thousands of these and it's really easily treated. She said it's not easily treated. It could lose a leg. It may not grow properly. If we don't treat the infection, it could lose its life. We're going to need MRIs. We're going to need six weeks of antibiotics. Do you know, it really was the worst time in our lives. And that's the truth. But I thank God that through those times... I really, really could say that he sustained me. My heart was down. I'm the mummy. My heart was so low. Honest to goodness, if you guys had not have prayed us through, I don't know how, how I would have got through it, and that's the truth. But there we were in the hospital in Manila. We were living there for months. And the bills racked up to £8,500. So there you go. Aren't you glad you're not living in the Philippines and needing health care? But anyway, while we were in the hospital... Um, I'm always talking about helping hands. So one day we were in the, the neonatal ICU and I was t the nurses all knew who I was by this stage and I was telling about helping hands. So one of them came in to me and she said, um, do you accept patients? And I'm looking around me thinking, well, it's a fancy hospital to be needing to get a patient from. And she said, no, no, my husband was on the train and he saw this wee baby sitting on her daddy's knee and she has a big meningo seal on the front of her face and she needs it removed. Um, 
And they had sold up everything they had. They lived away down the province in Davao, actually. They sold up everything they had. They come up to Manila to try to get the surgery. And I said to her, well, I'll tell you this. If I get my wee Noah home, I promise I'll help out. You just get me a number. So sure enough, wee Noah came home. And we phoned the people. They were able to come to Aloncapo. And you saw the little girl in the video. She was the one getting syringe fed by milk. We're able to do a surgery for her. I said to Daddy, you're a missionary, but you think you know when you're going to go into labour and you're going to have your baby and you're going to be in the hospital, you get a kind of couple of weeks maternity leave or something. Not at all. In fact, while Noah was in the ICU and I was going to feed him, the mummies were lined up outside the ICU in, in James waiting for me. Are you Mam Claire? I'm like, I'm in my dressing gown. I'm looking shocking. <laughs> no helping hands t-shirt on that day. Walking like this after Mrs. Sarian going along in stages. Yes, that's me. They're like, could you please help me? My wee baby's the one beside yours. And the nurses told me that you're helping hands and that you can help me. Do you know, we ended up sponsoring the four babies that were all around We Noah. And then while we were in, Noah was just, just got out of the ICU and he was into the room. Do you know, Mummy stayed that night. Mummy's so brave. She says, Claire, love, I'll stay with you in the hospital that night. So I woke up about two in the morning to feed Noah. And Mummy was staring at me. I says, have you not gone to sleep? She says, gone to sleep? No. I says, Mummy, because you've no bed. You have one of these benches, and it's about that width. Have you seen the width of me? So, like... It was a disaster trying to fit in the bench. So uh, mommy's looking over at me and I said, why are you staring at me? She says, I'm not staring at you. I'm staring at the rat behind you, making sure it doesn't crawl up in the bed beside you and Noah. <laughs> I says, you are kidding me? She says, I'm not kidding you, love. I've put much enough for hours and I'm not getting down until it moves. She says, I'm hoping it goes back out under the door it came from. So, oh dear, Lord help me. So that was, that was us the one day. So then the next day... Do you remember we Eloise, so the wee baby I used to tell you about had the heart problem. We took her in. She was abandoned at birth. Not your wee Eloise, I know it's a different one. She was a wee baby. She was abandoned at birth. And we took her in. we had her heart surgery. And she was doing really well. But she took an awful dose of the cold. And I was in with Noah. Like I say, we were downstairs in the rat room. And we Eloise was upstairs. And suddenly my staff came down. And they were banging the door. And they says, Madame, we need you to come up the stairs. We Eloise's temperature has hit 42. 42. They said, you're her parent. You're the guardian. You have to sign for her. They says you need to run. I remember saying to mummy, oh my goodness, mummy, I know how I'm going to do this. I mean, I literally, I'm a wreck. My emotions are all over the place. I can't walk and I have to run up the stairs. And I'm going to sign for this child that I've loved and cared for for two years. And I literally just about made it up the stairs just before she slipped into eternity. But you know, my staff were just all standing around her. And we were, we were just looking at her and the Lord just gave us a peace in our hearts. It was breaking our hearts. It was breaking our hearts. And I came back down and I lifted Noah and I hugged him very tight, I can tell you. And I says to mummy, do you know mummy, you, when the Lord calls you to serve him, it doesn't always suit. It's not always convenient. There's some times that it actually really is a disruption to you. There's times that it actually really isn't comfortable for you to do this. This is one of those moments, but I know that this is a moment that I'll never forget. She said, love you never will. Do you know, when I look at what we do, I said, Lord, how, how, how can you respond to such a big need? 
Lord, what, what are we as normal people, everyday people, what can I, how can I encourage the people to serve you? Lord, what would you guide me to? And he brought me to Matthew. And as I was reading through Matthew 8, read it later if you get a chance. I was reading through Matthew 8, and it was talking about Jesus healing people. And it said that the leper came to him. Now, if you read the chapter before, he had been out teaching parables, because he's a preacher, right? And he'd been out teaching parables. So all of a sudden, it says that he was going down the mountain. Crowds of people were following him. Crowds. Not just a handful, right? Crowds of people were following him. And all of a sudden, this leper comes and kneels at his feet. And he says, Lord, if you will it, you could heal me. Now, in those days, somebody had leprosy. They actually had to walk through the town, swinging a bell and shouting at the top of their lungs, unclean. So it wasn't like today when you have a wee infection, you know, you have a wee bit of something on your arm, you wear a long sleeve and cover it up. Or, you know, you kinda, you're not like proclaiming it from the rafters, by the way, I've got the heebie-jeebies, you know. But in those days, they had to do it with leprosy. And it was really, it touched my heart to read that scripture. What happened was the man knelt at Jesus' feet. And the Bible says that Jesus reached out and he touched him. And he said, I do, well, I, I want you to be healed. And it says that the, the leper was healed instantly. Jesus reached out and he touched. He didn't rush on by. He didn't say, yes, brother, let me pray for you and do it like this. He actually went and he touched him. Some of these ones, when they arrive covered in scabies, uh, weeping wounds, pseudomonas infections, sometimes the last thing you want to do is touch them. And I'm just being honest. Sometimes their heads alive with lice. There's a foul smell and odors dripping from their ears, dripping from their nose. They're passing worms in their diaper that looks like a massive bowl of spaghetti. I'm not kidding. Sometimes they're really untouchable. But Jesus reached out and he touched them. And you read that and you kind of read it quickly. But if you read the next bit, it says then, then a centurion came to him. And the centurion says, Lord, if you wanted to, you could heal my servant. He's lying in bed paralyzed. And Jesus didn't say, well, you know, I would, but I've reached my quota for today because I've already preached, I've already teached, I've teached, I've taught, and then I've already healed this one over here. So would you mind coming back next Thursday to see me? Or could you, I'm sorry, but I'm out of miracles for today. I'm so grateful God wasn't like that. Jesus wasn't like that. He healed the centurion's servant. Then the next thing was, Peter's mother-in-law, then the next, then the next, then the next. You just keep reading all those chapters. And the Bible says somewhere that not even all the miracles are recorded, just the ones that he wanted to share with us. There's so many more. I am so thankful that Jesus did not run out of patience and he didn't run out of his resources. Do you know, you've seen the video. You would be shocked at how many people say to me, Claire, you'll just have to learn to say no. Maybe I put out a wee Facebook appeal and somebody will private message me and say, it must be very hard, you know, to help them all. Well, you can't help them all. Well, which one of those parents would you personally like to go and, and hold their hands and say, I'm sorry, I can't help you all. You know, I've already done my quota for today and, you know, I've, I've reached my budget it breaks my heart. Mark will tell you, when I come home and I stink, it's always because I've had to say no to somebody. I'm not good at saying no. 
And it kills me to look somebody in the eye and say, I'm sorry, I actually have not cut the money to help you save your child's life. I can't do that. So that's where you come in and that's where you are a blessing to me. So please don't forget about us. Please, I beg you, don't forget about us. I know you don't see me so often, but we cannot do it without you. And what maybe is small to you or what some of you are not even given small things, you're sacrificing to give to us. And I so appreciate that. Some of you have been so faithful to be given. You've been giving me as 10 years and, and more. And I am so grateful for that because you enable me to minister into their lives. Jesus just kept helping. I don't read anywhere where he said, I'm sorry, I've reached my quota and I can't do any more. So when you pray for help in hands, please pray for us that we do not have to turn people away, that we can just keep helping and that the Lord will touch lives. My prayer this year is as well for more healings because the more that kids are healed, the less money I need to spend in medicines. True, you know. True. So you're wondering what to pray. Yes, play for resources because I need that. I mean, that's how the Lord brings them to me anyway in the first place. So I need that. But I need to see miracles. I told you about Chriselle and her legs. I told you about Noah. That child, according to the doctors in Craigavon, the child should definitely have either lost his leg or definitely be a lot shorter uh, because of, of all the things that he went through. But the Lord has touched him. One of my staff, I went into the operating room with her. We thought she had a, an abscess on her psoas muscle. That's what showed up on the MRI. We went inside. They opened her up. We looked in, and it was a big sarcoma. It was hard. It was white. It was fixed to her psoas muscle. It was huge. And the doctor actually said to me, oh, Claire, are you close to this girl? I mean, yeah, she's one of my staff for all these years. He says, I'm so sorry. I can't even touch that. He says, look, I'll take a wee biopsy, but more or less, I'm just going to stitch her up, he says, because it's, it's really, really big. And until you know what it is as well, he says, I don't want to go digging around, but it's not good. So we stitched her up, brought her upstairs. She was like, when she woke up, well, madame, what, did you get rid of my abscess? Like, Manette, we found something else and we're not sure what it is, but I'll tell you this, we're going to fast and pray. And I went to the staff and I said to them, please, guys, Please, this girl's single parent, she's one, of our, she's one of our team. We need her, and our daughter needs her. We need to fast and pray. So we did. We fasted and prayed for a week. And a week later, she, one night, she was in absolute agony. She seemed to have got worse. And what it was was an obstruction in her bowel. So we rushed her back into the surgery. Poor Mark, like, dear love me, wakes up in bed some nights. I'm not there because I'm, I'm in the operating room, and I don't wake him to tell him. I just go out, you know. And uh, that was one of those nights, middle of the night, we rushed back into the operating room, same doctors come in, we opened her up again, they took the bile out, they, it's like a big sausage skin, you know, they just squeeze it along and they emptied out the bile. And he says, look, while we're in, I'll take another wee biopsy. The first result had already come back initially that it was a certain kind of cancer. Like a, but anyway, we, we said, look, we'll do another one and we'll send it to Manila. Uh, so we're more specific. So he moved everything out of the road. And I moved it this way, and I moved it that way. And I'm like, I don't see anything. Where's that big white thing? He says, it's not there. 
And he says, oh my goodness. And I says, what's wrong, Doc? He says, oh, they're going to rib me in the office. They're going to say I got it wrong. They're going to, you know, they're not going to believe me. Because he's like, I've went and told them all that you're, there's big sarcoma in there. And he says, they're not going to believe me. And the anesthesiologist, he says, no, definitely, Armin, I saw it as well. And the junior doctor, he was like, no, I definitely saw it. I mean, I touched it like it was definitely there. And it was totally gone. And Armin says to me, the doctor, Sipetti, says to me, look, just do me a wee favour. He says, would you do another MRI? Like, just a wee favour. It's a couple of hundred pounds, you know. He says, would you do, please wait about six weeks, do an MRI. And he says, please, just so that I, because I have to do a whole report on this. Sure, no problem. Oh, please, Lord, make sure it's totally gone. We did an MRI. It was totally gone. Not a trace. That girl, now it took her time to recover because she had two major surgeries. In fact, I think it was three major surgeries in a couple of weeks. So, you know, things take time sometimes. Things are not always just instant. She's back to work. She's serving God. I tell you this, when she prays for a sick child, she prays, she prays big. She prays and she believes. I want to encourage you this morning. Keep praying for the sick. Keep praying. God does still heal. God does touch. Not all. As you know, I'm burying wee Gerson this week. But he does touch and he does heal and he does save. I encourage you, serve God. Don't just be a Sunday Christian. Do something. Paul James is coming next weekend. You're wondering what to do this week, apart from the big wedding, like. Because, I mean, some of us are going to be out every night of the week at that. But for the rest of you who actually have a free night in the week or who can make a free night by scratching the TV for a lot of nights, go and lift those leaflets downstairs. Get out round the doors. Do you know, Johnny and Jason did a course and a girl got saved. Where are you? Is that you? No? Who is that got saved? There she is. That's because somebody did a course. And you know, at first they were thinking, for goodness sake, you know, we thought we'd get these big numbers. We've only a small set of numbers. But this woman's got saved. See, I found out all the biz in the Philippines, you know, because he texts me all the time. This woman's got saved. He says, it's great. And I said, look at that. And you know what? There she was the other night giving out the leaflets for Paul James. Why? Because she knows that if you can just get in the doors and hear the gospel and have your life changed, then you want to make sure somebody else gets in the doors Here's the gospel and has their life changed. So I encourage you, serve him this week. Don't let this week pass without doing something for the Lord that you love.